Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChampaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You're listening to Outlaws and Gunslingers. The only podcast covering all of America's infamous criminals. From the Wild West to the Mafia, all the way up to the ruthless street gangs of today. Brought to you exclusively by the Creative Control Network. Here are your hosts, the Mouthy Michiganders, Bang and Dang. Welcome back to Outlaws and Gunslingers with Bang and Dang. And another week, another episode this week. Pretty significant one, I would say, as we're uh, reliving the 30-year anniversary of one of the most, I don't know, corrupt? Or one of the... Well, uh, it's another... Uh, one of the most... It was another terrible performance by the FBI. Well, one, that way. one of the first ones in, in terms of popular 90s sieges. Um, Ruby Ridge Siege. 30 years ago, 30 years, I believe two days ago, when this episode comes out, it'll be, yeah, it'll be two days before this episode comes out that this happened. Um, and yeah, if the people already didn't know how corrupt the, not only the FBI, but the CIA, the ATF, and all those guys, dude, there was so many, uh, bureaus of whatever you want to call them in, involved in this thing. Terrible. Um, and some shit went down. Some people, innocent people got killed to boot. After that, all over some guns, dude. All over some guns, dude. Mm. All over a bench warrant for guns. Yep. And this uh, probably was one of the first things in the 90s. And this was happening right after the uh, L.A. riots. So, I mean, there's so much shit going on in 1992. Um, O.J.'s murdering people and (laughs) a lot of stuff going on in 1992. Ruby Ridge. What else was going on? 92? I mean... Got the peak of the gang wars and shit, and um, what show did we just do a couple days ago? Oh, uh, the dude that killed the uh, um, the massacre on the train. That was in like '93 or something, right? So we're around that time. Yeah, early '90s were some fucked up times in the U.S. of A. In terms of uh, all the '90s, really. Yeah. Well, all t- <laughs> every year the United States been in existence. Let's put it that way. '80s wasn't that bad. Oh, I just what. Actually, not compared to the 70s. Everybody right. knows you never wanted to go on a subway in New York in the 70s. Mm. You're liable to get raped, killed. Serial killers both. doing their thing in the 70s. Right. 60s, 70s, yeah. Hell of a time. There wasn't a, there wasn't a good decade in America. Maybe no. 50s. What happened in the 50s? Uh, racism. Besides racism. <laughs> uh, nothing. It was a quiet time. No war. Well, Korean War. Oh, Korean War. That's right. Yeah, not a good decade. There's not been a good decade. Maybe forties. Maybe nineteen early early nineteen hundreds. Forties might have been decent. It was five years of that was World War Two. Yeah. It's always a war. Always. <laughs> Never gonna escape that. Uh Ruby Ridge, seven day or eleven day siege, my bad, in Bound Boundary County, Idaho, which is near Naples, begins on August twenty first when deputies of the United States Marshal Services. So you got the United States Marshals. They try to initiate action to apprehend and arrest Randy Reaver, Weaver under a bench war after his failure to appear on firearms charges. I mean, come on. Why did he fail to appear, though? <sighs> he could have avoided it all if he just would have went. Well, we'll see. He refused to surrender, and members of his immediate family and family friend, Kevin Harris, resisted as well. 
the hostage rescue team, why hostage? Nobody's hostage. Right. Uh, of the FBI became involved as the siege developed. And once the FBI, once those three letters become involved, you know, some, mm-hmm. some, uh, some shit's about to go down that's not ethical at the very least. It's crazy stuff going on here, boys. Even gets wilder. Ruby Ridge is the southernmost of four ridges. They extend east of the bottleneck Roman Nose mountain range toward the Kootenay River. Caribou Ridge lies north of it, and the area between them drains Damn, into the... Damn, I didn't the, know we were doing a fucking right um, <laughs> Battles of American Civil War. Right. And the area between them drains into Ruby Creek. Weaver insisted that his cabin located north of the creek was on Caribou Ridge, and that Ruby Ridge was a press invent- invention. Well, of course. Right. I don't think he called it Ruby Ridge. They put in Ruby Creek and Caribou Ridge. Right. And they're like, and they're like oh, there's a ruby and a ridge. Uh, two, two R's. Mm-hmm. And some media for you. Both ridge names were in use before the Weavers moved to the area, though. Okay. There was Caribou Ridge. Also, Ruby Ridge is a thing, then. But his was Caribou Ridge, right. though, so they just did it Ruby Ridge just because. Both of the ridge names were in use before the Weavers moved to the area, as in a Forest Service report on the 1967 Sundance Fire. Okay, so there must have been a fire around there by the Ruby Ridge area. The standoff occurred approximately 10 miles from the nearest incorporated city of Bonners Ferry and approximately 30 miles south of the border with Canada. Wow, they were just right there, huh? Randy Weaver, former Iowa factory worker, United States Army Green Beret. Oh, see, they, uh, and these guys tried to take him out, and he's a Green Beret, dude. Right. Moved with his wife and four children to northern Idaho during the 1980s so they could homeschool his children and escape what he and his wife, Vicky, saw as a corrupted world. Huh. Man, this guy's seen that shit in 1980s. All right. 1978, Vicky, the religious leader of the family, began to have recurrent dreams of living on a mountaintop and believed that the apocalypse was imminent. Oh, so cookie bitch. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> After the, the world's going to end tomorrow. Right. Well, maybe not tomorrow. Well, let's but... sell all of our stuff. Yeah. And uh, maybe we'll board the Haley Bop Comet. All right. After the birth of their son, we'll have those guys. Don't worry. After the birth of their son Samuel, the Weavers begin selling their belongings. <laughs> oh, shit. oh no! I didn't even know it. And visited the Amish to learn how to live without electricity. Well, that'd be one people you want to learn. But you right. got to get those, um, like the ones in Erie, Pennsylvania. Those are the right. those are the Amish, not oh. the ones that are around here. You're like, there's a couple of them around. They here still that. drive Ford F two fifties and shit. There's and, a couple of those small communities that don't. And, yeah, well, all the Amish I see here, they're literally driving F two fifties going to Culver's. <laughs> serious they bought 20 acres of land on ruby ridge in 1983 and began building a cabin i mean 20 acres and that's all you do is build a cabin but whatever 20. property was in uh boundary county on a hillside on ruby creek opposite caribou ridge northwest of nearby naples um in 84 we weaver and his neighbor terry kinnison had a dispute over a three thousand dollar land deal oh mm. i mean who cares 20 acres how many more do you need right $3,000, that was probably a half acre, maybe. Back then, it was probably a couple, acre, a couple acres. Nah. Kinnison lost the ensuing lawsuit, was ordered to pay Weaver an additional $2,100 in court Take costs. Take that, Kinnison. And damages. Kinnison wrote letters to the Federal Bureau, oh. the Secret Service, and a county sheriff in which he alleged that Weaver had threatened to kill Pope <laughs> John Paul II, <laughs> President Ronald Reagan, and Idaho Governor John V. Evans. I bet he did. Damn, All this, of them. What does this dude have against Reagan? All of them. Um, I can understand Pope John Paul. <laughs> probably Governor John V. Evans, too. Right. Uh, January 85, the FBI and Secret Service launched an investigation into allegations that Weaver had made threats against Reagan and other government and law enforcement officials. February 12th, Weaver and his wife were interviewed by two FBI agents, two Secret Service agents, and the Boundary County Sheriff and his chief investigator. Oh, he's over hearsay. Right. The Secret Service had been told that Weaver was a member of the Aryan Nations and that he had a large weapons cache at his residence. Oh, jeez. Weaver denied these allegations, and the government filed no charges. Okay, we'll leave it at that then. How about right. that? On three or four occasions, the Weavers had attended Aryan Nations meetings at Hayden Lake. Uh-oh. Well, kind of threw that one off of there, huh? <laughs> Where there was a compound for government resistors and white supremacists slash separatists. Uh, I don't know if they're really. Yeah, well, you probably shouldn't be associating yourself with those guys if you're already under investigation. Right. Lay well, low, dude. The investigator noted that Weaver associated with Frank Kumnick, who was known to associate with members of the Aryan Nations. Weaver told the investigators that neither he nor Kumnick was a member of that group. But... 
He stated that Kumnik was associated with the covenant, uh-oh, the sword and the arm of the Lord. Yeah, that's a nice little, uh, white supremacy group passing yeah. under themselves off as the Lord told us to do this. Right. That's, that's where people, kooky Christians. Yeah. February 18th. Nope. Scratch that. February 28th. Randy and Vicki Weaver filed an affidavit with the county courthouse alleging that their personal enemies were plotting to provoke the FBI into attacking and killing the Weaver family. Dang, uh, these guys already knew. May 6th, Weaver sent President Reagan a letter claiming that their enemies may have sent Reagan a threatening letter under a forged signature. No evidence of such letter surfaced, but in 92, the prosecutor cited the 85 letter as an overact of the Weaver family conspiracy against the federal government. Uh, of course they did. No. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms first became aware of Weaver in July of 1986. When he was introduced to a confidential ATF informant at a meeting at the World Aryans Congress. Uh, the informant portrayed himself as a weapons dealer working with motorcycle gangs. Weaver had been invited to the meeting by Kumnik, the original target of the ATF investigation. Oh, the original. So if you would just stay low, man, this guy he keeps on going to these stupid meetings. It was Weaver's first time at this Congress. Over the next three years, Weaver and the informant met several times. In July 1989, Weaver invited the informant to his home to discuss forming a group to fight the Zionist organized government, referring to the U.S. government. The U.S. government. The Zionist? I think it's Zionist. In October of 89, the ATF claimed that Weaver sold the informant two sawed-off shotguns with the overall length of the gun shorter than the limit set by federal law. Dude, you're going to go after somebody for sawed-off shotguns. In November of 89, Weaver accused the ATF informant of being a spy for the police. Pretty much was. Right. Weaver later wrote that he'd been warned by uh, somebody named Rico V. The informant's handler, Herb Byerly, ordered him to have no further contact with Weaver. Eventually, FBI informant Rico Valentino outed the ATF informant to Aryan Nation Security. Oh, jeez. Oh, so this dude's an FBI informant. Why is he outing him, though? Because he knows he's about to go to jail. You don't become an informant if you're a straight guy, first of all. Right. Huh. Mm. What's that all So you got about? FBI informants. Out in the ATF informants. <laughs> I mean, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah. The FBI. We, we already know that agencies don't, geez, oh, don't like each other. So. And the FBI are doing all kinds of Look, dirty yeah. stuff. Wow. June 1990. Byerly attempted to use the sawed-off shotgun charge as a leverage to get Weaver to act as an informant for his investigation into Aryan nations. Mm. Weaver, Weaver? You know Weaver uh, ain't doing that. Weaver refused to become a snitch. And the ATF filed the gun charges in June 1990. Yeah. The, ATF, the ATF alleged that Weaver was a bank robber with criminal convictions. <sighs> Those claims were false. At that time, Weaver had no criminal record. Criminal. Had no criminal record. The 1995 state investigation found Weaver was not a suspect in any bank robbery. Oh, no shit. They could have just looked that up right there. There they go. My goodness. Re Given a reason, a false reason to go after this guy. That's fucked, dude. Hey, we, we didn't take that guy's passports. <laughs> right. Uh, you can come get his passports at like 2 o'clock today. <laughs> <laughs> the federal grand jury indicted Weaver in December 1990 for making and possessing, but not for selling, illegal weapons in October 1989. Oh, jeez. The ATF concluded it would be too dangerous. So all they're going to do is charge him with having the sawed-offs. And making one. Right. Wow. And not and not selling it, even though he sold it, which wow. makes no sense. The ATF concluded it would be too dangerous for agents to arrest arrest Weaver at his property. January of ninety one, ATF agents posed as broken down motorists and arrested Weaver when he and Vicky stopped. Her. That's fucked up, dude. Yeah. You can't do that. That's crazy. Weaver was told of the charges against him, released on bail, and told that his trial would begin on February nineteenth, nineteen ninety one. January twenty second. I mean, I would be weary to go anywhere too. You got people hijacking you on the side of the road, right? Jeez, and they want me to go to court. Wow. Exactly. January 22nd, the judge in the case appointed attorney Everett Hoffmeister as Weaver's legal representative. Same day, Weaver called probation officer Carl Richens and told him that he had been instructed to contact Richens on that date. Okay. Why probation officer? I know, right? Dude's not even on probation. It doesn't make no sense. Well, he's out on bail, so it's kind of like probation. Uh, I, 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 sure. Richens did not have the case file at that time, so he asked Weaver to leave his contact info and said he would contact him when he received the paperwork. According to Richens, Weaver did not give him a telephone number. Why would he not? Hoffmeister sent Weaver letters on January 19th, 31st, and February 5th, asking Weaver to contact him to work on his defense within the federal court system. February 5th, the trial date was changed from, Fe from February 19th to the 20th to give participants more travel time following a federal holiday. 
Washington's B-Day. Or Lincoln's. Or Lincoln's, two. right? Washington's like 22nd or something. Uh, the court, or it's President's Day, obviously. Um, the court clerk sent the parties a letter informing them of the date change, but the notice was not sent directly to Weaver, only to Hoffmeister. Why? Uh, February 7th, Richens sent Weaver a letter indicating that he had the case file and needed to talk with him. This letter erroneously said that Weaver's trial date was March 20th. Oh. Oh, no. February 8th, Hoffmeister again attempted to contact Weaver by letter informing him that the trial was to begin on uh, February 20th and that Weaver needed to contact him immediately. Hoffmeister also made several calls to individuals who knew Weaver, asking them to have him call him. Hoffmeister told U.S. District Court Judge Harold Lyman Ryan <laughs> that he had been unable to reach Weaver before the scheduled court date. So if you can't reach him, then the trial should be postponed again, at least another week. All right. And if he's not getting no letters or anything, you can't count anything in the mail as getting. Exactly. It has to be served. That's why they got those Personally, people. Personally, right. right. When Weaver did not appear. You've been yeah. served. Frank Weaver. Yeah. Who needs to know? Nobody. <laughs> You've been soaked. When Weaver did not appear in court on the 20th of February, Ryan issued a bench warrant for failure to appear in court. Mm. February 26th, Ken Keller, a reporter for the... <laughs> of course, he's a reporter. <laughs> That's reporter Ken Keller on the scene. Right. A reporter from Kootenai Valley Times telephoned the United States Probation Office and asked whether Weaver did not show in court on February 20th because the letter Richen sent him had an inaccurate date. Why would he know that? Right. Upon finding a copy of the letter, the chief probation officer, Terrence Homo, contacted Ryan's clerk and informed them of the incorrect date in the letter. Oh, like, okay. This dude's cool, man. So everything should be corrected then, right? right? Well, okay. Well, we'll see. Homo also contacted U.S. Marshals and Weaver's attorney, informing them both of the error. Judge Ryan, however, refused to withdraw the best bench warrant. What oh, a dick. Wow. The uh, Marshals agreed to put off executing the warrant until after March 20th in order okay. to see whether Weaver would show up in court on that day. If he were to show up, the Department of Justice claimed that all indications are that the warrant should have been or would have been dropped. Right. But instead, when he showed up at the court. Right. The, instead, the U.S. Attorney's Office called a grand jury on March 14th. The Attorney's Office did not inform the grand juries of Richens' letter, and the grand jury is an indictment for failure to appear. Oh, no. This is so messed up, dude. Dang, dude. And they all know about it. They I got don't it. understand. They got it. They just want to indict somebody. Yeah. Jeez. Indicted. <laughs> <laughs> when the Weaver case passed from the ATF to the USMS, no one informed the marshals that the ATF had attempted to solicit Weaver as an informant. Corey, why would you? As law enforcement arm of the federal court, the marshals were responsible to arrest and bring in Weaver, now considered a fugitive. Oh, isn't there a movie with Tommy Lee Jones or yeah, something? U.S. Marshal, right? I think the fugitive, too, right? That's uh, Greer. Who? Richard Richard Greer. No, oh, the fugitive isn't that with um, Robert Downey Jr. and they're chasing somebody. Um, Harrison Ford or some shit. The, the Pelican Brief. No. <laughs> <laughs> Weaver simply stayed in his remote home, threatening to resist any attempt to take him by force. Ain't nobody going up to his property, that's for sure. Weaver was known to have an intense distrust of the United States. Oh, well, I wonder why. Everything they just displayed over the last three paragraphs. Yeah, well, I think he would be a little bit. Uh, a little distrustful. Right. The erroneous Richens letter is believed to have compounded this sentiment and may have contributed to Weaver's reluctance to appear for trial. You think? Mm. He was suspicious of what he thought were an inconsistent messages from the government and his lawyer, and he began to think there was a conspiracy against him. Okay. Weaver then claimed to believe that he would not receive a fair trial if he were to appear in court. His distrust grew even further when Hoffmeister erroneously told him, what a lot of erroneous, right. um, told him that if he lost a trial, he would lose his land, essentially leaving Vicky homeless, and that the government would take away his children. Why would his lawyer tell him that? Why would he lose his land? Right. That's ridiculous. Holy shit, this whole thing is just... They had it out for this guy. What, <laughs> what, what was he as a Green Beret? What did he do? Right. What does he know? What does he know? Yeah. What high-level target did he take out that they don't want him, nobody right. to know, you know? <clears throat> the U.S. Marshal's officers made a series of attempts to have Weaver surrender peacefully, but he refused to leave his cabin. Yeah, I would. Weaver negotiated with the United States Marshals Ron Evans, W. Warren Mays, and David Hunt through third parties from March 5th to October 12th. I wouldn't uh, negotiate with anybody that has a, a single initial as their first name. It's not, it's not a civil war, dude. Right, right. When Assistant U.S. Attorney Ron Howen directed that the negotiations cease... He's like, October 12th, been doing this since March. Right. I mean, yeah, that is a long time to be negotiating. Like, you guys got to wrap this shit up. Let's do something here. Are we going to charge him? He's going to come in. Well, What's the, happening? Well, the U.S. attorney directed 
that all negotiations go through Hofsmeister. But Weaver refused to talk with him. Why? Well, yeah, of course. Marshals began preparing plans to capture Weaver to stand trial on the weapons charges and his failure to appear at the correct trial day. How many years would he got for this? There was a shot off, sawed off shotgun. You can't get too many, right? I'm going to make an example of him and give him life <laughs> for a sawed off shotgun. Jeez. Maybe. Although Marshall stopped the negotiations as ordered, they made other contact. March 4th, 1992, U.S. Marshals Ron Evans and Jack Clough drove to the Weaver property and spoke with Weaver posing as real estate prospects. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Wait, he had already had contact with these guys. So how does he not know? Why did he just grab them? Right. And in March 27, 1992, meeting at the... uh, Marshall's headquarters, Art Roderick, codenamed the Operation Northern Exposure. Uh-oh. They always have to have some stupid names. Right. Surveillance teams were dispatched and cameras set up to record activity at Weaver's residence. Marshall's observed that Weaver and his family responded to vehicles and other visitors by taking up armed positions around the cabin until the visitors were recognized. Hell yeah. What? Wouldn't you not? Hell yeah. Look what you guys are doing, man. You guys are being the most secretive mother foes in the world. You guys send people there as undercover freaking real estate real estate agents. agents. What the hell? Man. Beginning in February 1991, the U.S. Marshals developed a threat source profile on Weaver. Agents' failure to integrate new information into that profile was criticized in a 1995 report by a subcommittee of the Senate Judiciary. Committee. Yeah, so they initiated it and didn't get right. anything new than what they already had. So stupid. They said the subcommittee is concerned that. As Marshall's investigating the Weaver case, learned facts that contradicted information they previously had been provided. They did not adequately integrate their updated knowledge into their overall assessment of who Randy Weaver was or what threat he may pose. Hey, oh, my. Dude. Are you serious? If the Marshals made any attempt to assess the credibility of the various people who gave them information about Weaver, they never recorded their assessments. Thus... Rather than maintaining the threat source profile as a living document, the marshals added new reports to an ever-expanding file, and their overall assessment never really changed. These problems rendered it difficult for other law enforcement officials to assess the Weaver case accurately without the benefit of firsthand briefings from persons who had continued involvement with him. Right. This is just ridiculous. What the hell is going on here? Terrible handling. Wow. I don't remember what... If anybody from these agencies get charged at the end of this, but already before any of the, all the other bullshit that's about to happen happens, then just from what we just discussed, there's got to be some heads got to rolling in this fucking in these organizations, dude. I mean, the marshals, the marshals used to be credible. Well, they now were looking dumb. They were when Raylan Givens was on their team. FBI always has been douchey. And obviously the ATF is yeah, just you don't trust those guys either. All right. He's OP. The subcommittee said that the profile included no. many of the people the, of the marshals used as a third-party go-betweens on the Weaver case. Bill and Judy Greider, Ellen Jeppesen, and Richard Butler were assessed by the marshals as more radical than the Weavers. Oh, shit. When Deputy U.S. Marshal Dave Hunt asked Greider, why shouldn't I just go up there and talk to him? Greider replied, let me put it this way. If I was sitting on my property and somebody with a gun comes to do me harm, then I'll probably shoot him. And as would Weaver, apparently. Right. Or any person, right? Guy comes in your thing with a gun. Right. The subcommittee said that the profile included a brief psychological profile completed by a person who had conducted no firsthand interviews and was so unfamiliar with the case that he referred to Weaver as Mr. Randall throughout. Oh, my. A later memo memo circulated within the Justice Department opined or opined that the assumptions of federal and some state and local law enforcement personnel about Weaver, that he was a Green Beret, that he would shoot on sight anyone who attempted to arrest him, that he had collected certain types of arms, that he had, quote-unquote, booby-trapped and tunneled his property, exaggerated the threat he posed. They had no evidence of him any doing of this. any of this. None. Jeez, None dude. whatsoever. Wow. This is ridiculous. Now this fucking guy. Following a flyover by a hired helicopter for Gerardo... <laughs> Geraldo Rivera's <laughs> Now It Can Be Told television show on April The 18th. same guy that uh, hyped up 
He thought Tom he was going to Al Capone safe right. and opening it nothing, dude. What an idiot. He should have been off the air after that. I wonder if he actually thought it was in there. Well, they all did. It was live. I know. Nobody knew what was in it. And then they open it, and then the biggest, the biggest botch in television history, dude. Following a flyover by a hired helicopter for Gerardo Rivera. Geraldo Rivera. I hate that name. I know. Uh, his, his TV show was called Now It Can Be Told. On April 18, 1992, the, the U.S. Marshals received media reports that Weaver had shot at the helicopter. Media reports. <sighs> media reports. Meanwhile, there's people in the helicopter that would know, so why didn't you ask them? That day in Idaho, U.S. Marshals were installing surveillance cameras overlooking the Weaver property. The field report for April 18, 1992, followed by Marshal W. Warren Mays, reported seeing a helicopter near the Weaver property, but not that any shots were heard. In an interview with, you think if shots were heard, I'm like, what the hell? Right. In an interview with a Corps de Leon newspaper, what the hell is that? Must be a city in Idaho, I'm assuming. Weaver denied that anyone had fired at the helicopter. Of course. Yeah, I'm sure he didn't. When interviewed by the FBI, okay, when interviewed by the FBI, the helicopter pilot Richard Weiss said that Weaver had not fired on his helicopter. A report, a later report afterwards said that the indictment of Weaver was presented to the grand jury. The prosecution had no evidence that no shots had been fired at the helicopter. So no shots. We know that. Media reports that Weaver had fired on the Rivera helicopter became part of the justification later cited by U.S. Marshal Wayne Duke Smith and FBI commander, um, the um, hostage team commander, Richard Rogers, and drawn up the Ruby Ridge rules of engagement on August 21st and 22nd, 1992. Wow. So they're like, this dude shooting at helicopters, we gotta go in. Wow. What a, wow. All because, of course, some media wanted to exaggerate shit, and uh, dude, wow. that's fucked. This is all just garbage. Also, in spite of Weiss's repeated denials that shots had been fired at his helicopter, how in charge that as over Act 32 of the Weaver's conspiracy against the federal government, Randy, Vicky, and Harris fired two shots at the oh. Rivera helicopter. Wow. How can you do that? <laughs> they do whatever they want, man. Operation Operation Northern Exposure was expended for three months due to the confirmation hearings for the United States Marshal Service Director Henry E. Oh, so now they're confirming this guy to be the director, right. and who knows how corrupt this guy is now. Well, we're back at it August 21st, which is the first day of 1992. Six marshals were sent to scout the area to determine suitable places away from the cabin to apprehend and arrest Weaver. At this point, I don't think this guy's coming off his property. Right. The marshals dressed in military camouflage were equipped with night vision goggles because that's not going to provoke somebody that you think's got a cache of weapons. Jeez, oh, um, night vision goggles and M16 rifles. Director of the United States Marshal Art Roderick, Larry Cooper, and William F. Deegan formed the reconnaissance team, while uh, David Hunt, Joseph Thomas, and Frank Norris formed an observation post team on the ridge north of the cabin. At one point, Roderick threw two rocks at the Weaver cabin to test the dog's reaction. Oh, the action provoked the dogs. Weaver's friend Kevin Harris and Weaver's 14-year-old son Samuel emerged and followed the dog, Stryker, to investigate. What do you, you see, Stryker? What is, what is out there? Harrison, the young weaver, said that they were hoping the dog had noticed a game animal as the cabin was out of meat. The, rec- the recon team, Roger Cooper and Deegan, initially retreated through the woods in radio contact with the OP team, but later took up hidden defensive positions. These guys look, oh shit. Later, the OP team and the weavers claimed the dogs were alerted to the recon team in the woods after the neighbors at the foot of the mountain started their pickup truck. Uh oh. The recon team retreated through the woods to a Y junction. In the trails 500 yards west of the cabin, out of sight of the cabin. Sammy and Harris followed Stryker on foot through the woods, while Randy, also on foot, took a separate logging trail. Vicky, Sarah, Rachel, and baby Elisheba remained at the cabin. The OP team were anxious as, at first, but then relaxed. Don't care. All right. Jeez, OP. Randy encountered the marshals at the Y. Oh. Ryder claimed he have yelled, back off, U.S. Marshal, upon sighting Weaver and Cooper. Oh, Ann Cooper said he had shouted, Stop, U.S. Marshal. By their account, Sammy and Stryker came out of the woods about a minute later. When the Marshal's position was re- revealed by the dog Stryker, a yellow Labrador, uh, Roderick boy. shot That's the a good dog boy. Oh, dead, no. Murdered him. Jeez. They were just waiting to do they something. Quite, they, were, they had to get those first shots off, dude. Wow. Well, seeing this, Sammy Weaver reacted by shooting in the direction of Roderick. Um, Marshal Cooper then shot towards Sammy Weaver and Kevin Harris, who both sought cover. Harris, once finding cover behind a tree stump, then returned fire with one unaimed, unaimed shot, 
which eventually killed oh, no. Marshal William Francis Deegan. Wow. Sammy Weaver, now retreating up a hill, was then shot in the back and killed oh, by no. Marshal Cooper. Just a 14-year-old kid. Just a 14-year-old kid. These guys are morons. <sighs> a later ballistics report showed that 19 rounds were fired After the they fight. provoked the dog by throwing rocks at him. I mean, come on, man. Right. They uh, said 19 rounds were fired during this fight. Roderick fired one shot from a M16A1, which killed Stryker, the dog, by entering his body two inches from the dog's anus and exiting his chest. Holy crap. He shot him in the ass. He <laughs> shot him in the ass. <laughs> then Sammy fired three from a 223 Ruger Mini 14 at Roderick. Deegan fired seven from his M16 at Harrison Weaver while moving at least 21 feet. And Cooper fired six from a 9mm Coke submachine gun Jeez. at Harris and Weaver. Harrison fired two from a .30-06, uh, striking and killing Deegan. After the federal agents began, began firing, Sammy was killed by a shot to the back while retreating. Harris fired one unaimed shot and killed Deegan. Right. Unaimed, just taking cover, probably pointing his gun out, right. shooting. Um, meanwhile, it doesn't already look good. You shot a 14-year-old in the back. Oh, my goodness. The origin of the shot that killed Sammy was of critical concern in all investigations. I bet it was. Right. At the time of the writing of the Ruby Ridge Report, which was in 1996, the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Terrorism, Technology, and Government, anything that has Senate or right. government, anything like that, it was chaired by Senator Arlen Specter. Well, that dude's a piece of shit. Right. Observed that the government's, I don't even know him, uh, the government's position at trial was that Cooper had fired the shot. The subcommittee engaged additional experts and ultimately declined to draw... Ultimately, declined to draw a final yeah, conclusion because they, they didn't knew want to, exactly who did. They it. didn't want to blame it on one person. It's like a firing squad. That's Nobody sad, knows who got dude. the bullet. That's sad. Wow. The Justice Department. But trust me, even firing squads, they know who hit them. Right. The Justice Department's Ruby Ridge Task Force report to the Office of Professional Responsibility states: Jeez. the evidence suggests, but does not establish, that the shot that killed Sammy Weaver was fired by Cooper. It was concluded there was no indication he intended to shoot Weaver. Uh, okay. <laughs> they're in a gunfight. First of all, they're federal agents trained. Right. Only time you open gun, open fire is to kill. Right. Reporter Jess Walter in his work, Ruby Ridge, The Truth and Tragedy of the Randy Reaver Family. It concludes that Cooper fired the bullet that killed Sammy Weaver. Well, thanks. Everybody knows all this. For some author guy that we already know. 97, Boundary County Sheriff J Greg Sprungle conducted an independent search of the Y, which is where all that stuff went down, and his investigator, Lucian Hag, or mm -hmm. Hog, mm -hmm. discovered and confirmed that a bullet found in the search matched uh, Marshall Cooper's 9mm coat submachine gun and contained fibers that matched Sammy's shirt. Obviously. Conclusively proving that Marshall Cooper shot 14-year-old Sammy Weaver in the back as he retreated. Well, and it wasn't say. accidental. It was 100% on purpose. Right. Jeez. Harris's and the federal agent's accounts differ as to who fired first. Well, of course it does. 1993 trial over charges in Deegan's death. Prosecutors alleged that Harris had fired the first shot. Harris asserted self-defense and was acquitted. Nice. Nice. On cross-examination by the defense, ballistics experts called by the prosecution testified that the physical evidence contradicted neither the prosecution's nor the defense's theories of the gunfight. Wow. Martin Fackler testified that Roderick fired the shot or shots that killed Stryker, that Deegan fired the shot that hit Sammy in the right elbow, that Harris shot and killed Deegan, and that Cooper probably shot and killed Sammy. Probably. Most likely. Um, Sammy got shot in the elbow, too. I guess so. Acquitted, though. That was good. Yeah. yeah. Um, right, because Harris and Sammy didn't hear the two agents right. shout that they were U.S. Marshals. Right. They were they came out of the woods a minute after that, so right. they couldn't have heard it. Roderick and Cooper stated that Stryker preceded Harris and Sammy out of the woods. They said Deegan challenged Harris, who turned, shot, and fatally wounded Deegan before he could fire first. False. Uh -uh. They said Roderick shot, shot the dog once. Sammy fired twice at Roderick, and Roderick returned fire. Roderick and Cooper testified they heard multiple gunshots from the Weaver property mm. or party. Uh, Cooper testified that he had fired two three-shot bursts. So... Boom, 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 at Harris and saw Harris fall like a sack of potatoes. Mm. You think he said potatoes or potatoes? All right. Uh, with leaves flying up in front of him, presumably from the impact of a round or from his body right. falling lifeless into the damn stack of leaves. Not Harris. Oh, Harris. Okay. Oh, did he get shot? Yes. Um, 
So either they're lying already, but whatever. Well, Cooper sought cover. He testified that he saw Sammy run away and radioed OPT member Dave Hunt that he had wounded or killed Harris. As described by Randy and Sarah Weaver in their book, The Federal Siege, in 1998, Harris's version of events differed as follows. Harris told them Stryker was followed out of the woods by Sammy and Harris and that the dog ran up to Cooper. He said the dog ran to Roderick, who shot in front of Sammy, and Sammy yelled, You shot my dog, you son of a bitch! <laughs> and fired a shot at Roderick. Well, at this point, neither of them know that they're uh, agents. Let's, let's have this be clear, okay? Right. Harris said that Deegan came out of the woods and shot Sammy in the arm, and Harris fired and hit Deegan in the chest. According to the Weavers, Harris said that uh, Cooper fired at Harris, who ducked for cover, and Cooper fired again, hitting Sammy in the back, who fell. Harris fired about six feet in front of Cooper, forcing him to take cover. Only then did he hear Cooper identif identify himself as U.S. Marshal. Uh, Harris said he checked Sammy and found him dead and ran to the Weaver's cabin. Jeez. <sighs> After the firefight at the Y, Hunt and Thomas went to a neighbor's house to call for assistance from the Marshal's Crisis Center. Norris, Cooper, and Roderick stayed with Deegan's body at the Y. Randy and Vicky went to the Y and retrieved Sammy's body. Randy, Vicky, and Harris placed the body in a guest cabin near the main cabin. Huh. From 11.50, so they had the guys there, and these guys come to just collect their bodies. Come to collect bodies, man. We ain't done. <laughs> All right, we'll be back. Uh, from 11.15 a.m. onward, Hunt reported to the crisis center in Washington, D.C. that no further gunfire was heard. Mm. And this is August 21st. In the aftermath of the gunfight on that day at 11.20, uh, Marshal Hunt requested immediate support from Idaho law enforcement. And he also alerted the FBI by notifying it that a marshal had been killed. The FBI is like, oh, yeah, I got some action now. Oh, yeah, boys. Uh, following Hunt's phone call, the Marshal Service Crisis Center was activated under the direction of Duke Smith, Associated uh, Associate Director for the operations. The Marshal Service Special Operations Group, which is SOG, was alerted to deploy. Uh oh, special ops, baby. Yeah. In response to the marshal's call, the Boundary County Sheriff's Office mobilized. Got everybody coming out now, man. Also in response to the marshal's request, Idaho Governor Cecil Andrus declared a state of emergency in Boundary County. Jeez, really? Allowing the use of Idaho National Guard Armory and uh, Bonner's Ferry and, after an initial delay, to use National Guard armored personnel carriers. Soon thereafter, the Idaho State Police arrived at the scene. But not... Not National Guard troops, though. No. That's there. You can go in and you can go and use our guns. You can use our transports, but you ain't gonna use us yet. No, not yet, guys. And the Idaho State. I'm surprised they weren't at the scene already. Right. FBI headquarters in D.C. responded by sending the hostage rescue team, known as the HRT, from Quantico to Idaho. Okay. Special agent in charge. Is that a you, song. <laughs> I went from Quantico to Idaho. From Madam to do. Is that like a? Uh, Quantico? Quantico? John Wayne it's like, no, it's like, John Wayne I think you're thinking of Quantum uh, Leap or something like that. That's like Special agent in charge, Eugene Glenn of the Salt Lake City FBI, um, was appointed site commander with responsibility for all active individuals from the FBI, ATF, and the um, marshals. He's okay. taking over everybody. So then a standoff ensued for 11 days as several hundred federal, several hundred Federal agents surrounded the house. Jeez, and negotiations for a surrender were attempted. So that his son was just laying there dead for eleven days. Eleven days in the house, dude, rotting. That's ridiculous. By Saturday, the twenty-second of August, special rules of engagements were drafted and approved by the FBI headquarters and the Marshal Service for use on Ruby Ridge. Rules of engagement is that like another uh, movie? It's a TV show, isn't it? Well, that's a comedy, but I think there's a rules of or. Rules of engagement, yeah. Probably. According to the later RRTF report to the DOJ in 1994, the Ruby Ridge Row were as follows. The, Number one. Uh, the rules of engagement, right? Right. Number one. If any adult in the area around the cabin is observed with a weapon after the surrender announcement had been made, deadly force could and should be used to neutralize the individual. But only after the surrender announcement. Right. Wait. After the surrender. After they tell him to surrender. Right. I get it. Number okay. two, if any adult male is observed with a weapon prior to the announcement, deadly force can and should be employed if the shot could be taken without endangering any So they're any saying even children. if you see somebody with a weapon before we announce right. the request to surrender, kill them. Right. Jeez. Number three, if compromised by any dog, the dog can be taken out. Well, you already took out the dog. I had to put that in there. 
I know. They were like, make sure we get that. <laughs> Number four, any subjects other than Randy Weaver, Vicky Weaver, Weaver, Kevin Harris, presenting threat of death or grievous bodily harm, FBI rules of deadly force apply. Deadly force can be utilized to prevent the death or grievous bodily injury to oneself or that of another. So basically, Moida is on the table. Any place. subjects other than those right. three, though? Other than a child. No, other than Randy, Vicky, and Kevin. Yeah, anybody. They're saying anybody. But other than them. Right. 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 Anybody, basically. Right. Even them. Right. There's no children. Huh. There's no children, they say. But that one gets... Except for the one, one that already, uh, you know, the first death. And uh, what's about to happen, too. The child didn't die, but... It doesn't matter. As noted in a footnote to the report in this crucial section, the uh, rules of engagement was modified from adult to adult male in uh, number two to exclude Vicki Weaver at around 2.30 or 3 p.m. after consultation with Eugene Glenn because Vicki Weaver was not seen at the site of Deegan Slan. Right, right. right. The rules of engagement were communicated to the agents on site, including communication to HRT snipers slash observers prior to deployment. Communications that included the change of adult to adult male to exclude Vicky. Some deployed FBI agents, in particular the snipers, would later describe the adopted rules of engagement as a green light to shoot on site any fucking body. Oh, my goodness. Dude, how, how, such poor communication. Dude. No communication. Just they didn't. They, it doesn't matter anyway. They were they were just shooting to kill. They're lying just to get here in the first place. Right. Twenty second of August, the second day of the siege, between two thirty and three thirty p.m., the FBI hostage team, sniper observer teams, were briefed and deployed to the cabin on foot. According to the RRTF report to the DOJ, there were various views and interpretations. Interpretations taken of these rules of engagements by members of the FBI SWAT teams in action at the Ruby Ridge site. Denver SWAT team leader Gregory Sexton described them as severe and inappropriate. They were. Good for you, Denver SWAT team leader Gregory Sexton. <sighs> Two members of the Denver SWAT team said they were strong and a departure from the standard deadly force policy, inappropriate, and of a sort one had never been given before. Right. Uh, the latter of these two members said that the other SWAT team members were taken aback by the rules and that most of them clung to the FBI standards deadly force policy. Yeah, they're like, we're not right. doing this. Right. Another team member responded to the briefing on the uh, rules of engagement with, you've got to be kidding. you got to be kidding me. What's going on? What do they have on this guy? Right. What did he do? Why are they so eager to take right. this dude out like this? Right. What does he know? Mm. Most of the FBI hostage and sniper observers team accepted the rules of engagement as modifying the deadly force policy. According to later interviews, uh, Hush's sniper Dale Monroe saw the rules of engagement as a green light to shoot armed adults, males on site. Males, though. Yeah. And Hush's sniper Edward Wenger believed that if he observed armed adults, he could use deadly force. But he was to follow standard deadly force policy for all other individuals. He said adult that time. Any any adult, right. right. Fred Lancely, the FBI hostage negotiator at Ruby Ridge, was surprised and shocked at the rules of engagements, the most severe rules he had heard in more than 300 hostage situations. He later characterized the rules of engagements as being inconsistent with standard policy. The 1996 Senate report criticized rules of engagement as virtual shoot-on-site orders. Seriously. Well, what, what, what are they, what are they uh, high-level Al-Qaeda operatives, or what the hell? Yeah, they, they, can, they can criticize it afterwards, but let right. it happen when it did. Before negotiators arrived at the cabin, FBI sniper Lon Hirochi, Hirochi, from a position of over 200 yards north and above the Weaver cabin, shot and wounded Randy Weaver in the back with the bullet exiting his right armpit while he was lifting the latch on the shed to visit the body of his dead son. Oh, jeez. The sniper testified uh, later at the trial that he put his crosshairs on Weaver's spine, but Weaver moved at the last second, so he was going to kill him. As Weaver, his 16-year-old daughter Sarah, and Harris ran back toward the house, Hirachi fired a second bullet, wounding Harris in the chest. Jeez. This bullet killed... Oh, jeez. This bullet killed Vicky Weaver, who was standing behind the door in the cabin where Harris entered. Vicky was holding the Weaver's 10-month-old baby. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Idiots. I always thought that they saw her in a window and shot her. Right. I guess not, huh? But still, wow. Or she was standing in the doorway. I knew that. Or something, right. Yeah. Jeez, old Pete. The RRTF report to the Department of Justice Office of Professional Responsibility of June 1994 stated unequivocally in conclusion 
that the rules that allowed the second shot to have been made did not satisfy constitutional standards for legal use of deadly force. The 1996 report of the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee committed. Jeez, old Pete. <laughs> it's also a committee, but a subcommittee. At the same time. 1996 report of the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee Subcommittee on Terrorism, Technology, and Government Information. Jeez, old freaking Pete. You guys just like having a bunch of names. Anyway, Arlen Specter is the chair. Concurred with Senator Dianne Feinstein saying, yeah, this is ridiculous. You know, she dissented. She said, no, that was absolutely. Well, she said it was good. Yeah. She's like, no, that was good. She's a Democrat and the uh, specters right. a Republican. So All right. mm. both pieces of shit. But um, the, uh, oh, there's... the RTF report said that the lack of a request by the marshals to the weavers to surrender was inexcusable. I know. Jeez. Harrison, the two weavers were not believed to be imminent threat. Right. Why would they be? Right. Since they were being reported as running for cover without returning fire. Jeez. No call out. No, nothing. nothing this is, dude. they should have a helicopter Shoot. come in and be like, shine a light or something. Right. Be Jeez, like, oh, freaking Pete, man. The later Justice Task Force criticized Haruchi for firing through the door when he did not know if anyone was on the other side of it. While there is a dispute as to who approved the rules of engagement, which Haruchi followed, the task force condemned the rules of engagement that allowed Chas to be fired with a request for, without a request for surrender. Right. So they're just shooting. Yeah. They didn't even, they, they, yeah. They haven't even requested anybody to surrender oh, yet. The dude sniping uh, the dad, going to look at his dead son, and he's getting sniped in the back. That is just sad. That's ridiculous. Dude. Jeez, old Pete. The FBI's headquarters and the site commanders in Idaho both reevaluated the situation based on information about what had happened on the 21st of August, which they were receiving from U.S. Marshals Hunt, Cooper, and Roderick. On August 23rd, repeated attempts to negotiate with Weaver via a bullhorn failed. There was no response from the cabin. On about Monday... August 24th. About Monday. The fourth day of the siege. FBI Deputy Assistant Director Danny Colson, who did not know that Vicky had been killed, wrote a memo with the following content. How does he not know? Right. Uh, he wrote a memo. He said, something to consider. One, charge against Weaver is bullshit. Oh. Uh, Two, no one saw Weaver do any shooting. Three, Vicky has no charges against her. It doesn't matter. Four, Weaver's defense. He ran down the hill to see what the dog was barking at. Some guys in camouflage shot his dog, started shooting at him, killed his son. Harris did the shooting. He is in a pretty strong legal position. Of course he is. Wow. And he didn't even know what was just happening. Right. The standoff was ultimately resolved by civilian negotiators, including Bo Gritz, to whom Weaver agreed to speak. Through Gritz's mediation, Harris, who had earlier <laughs> who had earlier urged Weaver to end his suffering, surrendered on August 30th, which was a Sunday. He was removed via stretcher. Yeah, he's shot. Right. And then he was flown by Air Force Medical Evacuation Helicopter to Sacred Heart Medical Center in Spokane. Okay. Weaver allowed the removal of his wife's body, his wife's body, which Gritz oversaw. You know, yeah, he was like, guy. dude, you're about to die. Your wife just died. Your right. kids died. I'm surprised he just didn't go out blazing, dude. Think of your daughter. And he's probably like, all this stuff, uh, he's probably been seeing the news coverage and stuff, too. He's like, dude, you got this. He's like, get out of here and fight this. All right. Jeez, OP. The FBI hostage commander gave Gritz a deadline to get the remaining weavers to surrender. And if they did not surrender on the day of the deadline, he said he would resolve the standoff by launching a tactical assault. <sighs> That's ridiculous. Weaver and his daughter surrendered the next day. Both Harris and Weaver were arrested. Harris was in serious condition at Sacred Heart, but U.S. Marshals did not allow his parents to see him or talk by telephone until Monday evening after a federal court order was issued. Weaver's daughter were released to the custody of relatives. At least they did that. Jeez. Federal officials considered charging Sarah, who was 16, as an adult. Weaver was transferred by military helicopter to airport at Sandpoint, and from there he was flown by um, Marshall's, uh, Marshall's jet to Boise. There he was given a brief medical examination at St. Luke's Medical Center, and then he was held at the Ada County Jail and arraigned in federal court the following day. Tuesday, September 1st. Ridiculous. We, we, Weaver, we, 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 Weaver and Harris were charged with a variety of offenses. Their trial in U.S. District Court in Boise began in April of 1993 and was presided over uh, Judge Lodge. Judge Edward Lodge, that is. Weaver's defense attorney, Gary Spence, rested his case in mid-June without calling any witnesses for the defense, instead seeking to convince the jury through cross-examination aimed at discrediting government evidence and witnesses. I mean, that should have been enough. Once they found out what exactly happened, it should have been over They need with. no defense witnesses, right. dude. 
Weaver was ultimately acquitted in July of all charges except missing his original court date and violating his bail conditions, which he deserved that. For which he was sentenced in October to 18 months imprisonment. <laughs> yeah, and right. You know they gave him 18 months just to do it. They're like, we're going to give him the maximum on this one. Right. See, all that, he would only got eight months, six months in jail if he would just turn himself in the beginning. And instead he ended up getting his dog, his son, and his wife martyred. Right. I mean, jeez. Credited with time served and good behavior, he was sentenced to less than 16 months, or he served less than 16 months and was released from the Canyon County Jail in Caldwell in uh, mid-December. Harris was defended by attorney David Nevin and was acquitted of all charges. Of course he was. Exactly five years after the incident, he was indicted. Oh, exactly five years later, or after the incident, he was indicted by Boundary County Prosecutor Denise Woodbury for the first-degree murder of uh, Marshal Bill Deegan. But the charge was dismissed in early October on the grounds of double jeopardy. Right. right, you can't charge him twice. Well, they're still trying to go after the guy, right? Because he had not he had been acquitted in the federal criminal trial on the same charge in '93. What you can't do double jeopardy? Are these people who what runs this stuff? And then what are they trying to even mess with? It? They, they, these dudes got acquitted of all the charges that they were trying to charge him with. Right. They did a whole sneaky spy campaign on the dudes. Killed his son and wife. Killed their dog. These guys got off in court, and now they're trying to put more char- the same charges on them uh, locally. Why would they? Who? What kind of a di- oh what kind of district goodness. attorney or uh, attorney general would approve those charges? Anyways, they would know. Like, hey, wait, didn't he just get acquitted for this same thing? We can't do that, right? Holy oh shit! God. This is just sad news. This is just stupid. Holy wow. moly, dude. Defense counsels for Weaver and Harris alleged throughout their 93 trial that agents of the ATF, uh, the marshals, and FBI were themselves guilty of serious wrongdoing. No shit. The Department of Justice created the Ruby Ridge Task Force to investigate the events. It delivered a 542-page report on June 10th of 94. this report, which was originally available in a highly redacted form, because they always are, eventually became avo- available in a more complete form later on down the line. Questions persisted about Ruby Ridge and the subsequent Waco siege, which involved the same agencies and many of the same same officials, too, dude. The Senate Subcommittee on Terrorism, Technology, and Government Information held 14 days of hearings on these both both of these incidents and allegations of misconduct, which ended in October How did they even allow these guys to head these missions? Idiots. There was 14 days of hearings on these incidents and allegations of misconducts, which ended October 19th, 1995. The hearings were televised by C-SPAN, but October 1995, O.J. Simpson's trial is going on at the same time, so nobody gives a shit about any of these, probably. Also, the train guy's trial. Right. Um, both the internal 94 Ruby Ridge Task Force report and the public 1995 Senate subcommittee sub- com- sub- report Criticized the rules of engagement as unconstitutional of because of fucking course it was. Jeez, oh, OP, but nothing will ever become of it. Did uh, Weaver get compensated? 1995, GAO investigation was conducted on policies regarding use of force by federal law enforcement agencies. Its report said, in October 1995, Treasury and Justice adopted use of the deadly force policies to standardize the various policies their component agencies had adopted over the years. The major change was the agencies required a law enforcement agent to have reasonable belief of an imminent danger of death or serious physical injury in order to use deadly force, which opening a freaking storm cellar to check on your 14-year-old son's body is not imminent danger. Or running away to uh, a building with your back turned to people is not imminent danger. But now, but the sad thing is, this is after Ruby Ridge and Waco, and just got implemented in October of 95. Like, come on, dude. It took you f- uh, four years after the original thing? Stupidity. This brought all federal law enforcement agency deadly force policies in line with the U.S. Supreme Court rulings, which was Tennessee versus Garner. Uh, that happened in 1985. And Graham versus Connor in 1989, which applied to state and local law enforcement agencies. In 97, Michael Caho. C- the chief of the FBI violent crime section pled guilty to obstruction of justice oh, wow. for destroying a report critical of the agency's role at Ruby Ridge. Uh-oh. He was sentenced to 18 months and a $4,000 fine. So guess, this dude, this guess dude what happened because you're fricked up. Uh, this dude. Re- wow. Somebody wrote said, uh, you're FBI. It's the FBI. Of course your FBI is, uh, right. did some wrongdoing here, but like, he's like, no, nope, uh, that letter's never seen the light right. of day. Jeez, OP. This is ridiculous. 
<sighs> Randy Weaver and his daughters filed a wrongful death suit for $200 million, which they should have won, which was related to the killing of his wife and son. In an out-of-court settlement in 1995 of August, the federal government awarded Randy Weaver $100,000. Oh, my. It also awarded $1 million to each of his three daughters. Well, good for them, I guess. He had three more daughters. Well, he had the two that were there. I don't know about the third one. The government did not admit that it had committed any wrongdoing in the deaths of Sammy and Vicky. That's so fucked. He took the settlement, too, and was like, the settlement agreed well, he- that they didn't have to... Uh, um, admit to any wrongdoing. I would have thought out more. I'm like, no, you're you're admitting to this, dude. Like, no, I had for two hundred million. You give me a hundred thousand, and then a million to the kids, and then you're gonna tax them, right? So they tax got that mill seven hundred thousand. On the condition of nominee, <laughs> anonymity, nominee, anonymity, nominee, anon, anonymity, 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 anonymity. 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 On the condition of anonymity. (laughs) (laughs) On the condition of being uh, kept anonymous, a DOJ official told the Washington Post that he believed the Weavers would have probably won the full amount if the case had gone to trial. That's what I just said. The attorney for Harris pressed Harris's civil suit for damages, although federal officials vowed that they would never pay someone who would kill a U.S. Marshal. That's probably true. But, however, not true. September of 2000, Harris was awarded a $380,000 settlement by the government. Dude. This dude got three. How did he get 380 in there? Oh, and Weaver got 100. 100,000, right. And, and his, he, two he of his people were killed. And he did nothing. That's sad, dude. He didn't shoot at nobody, did he? Not, not, not during the siege? Not yeah. ever, I don't think. Right. Get the hell out That's of here. sad. 1997, Boundary County Prosecutor Denise Woodbury indicted FBI hostage sniper Lon Hirochi for manslaughter on state charges, which she should have. Just before the statute of limitations for his crime expired. Good. Five years. Should be more than that. She appointed a special prosecutor to conduct the case. But in 1998, trials were moved to federal court because Hirochi had been acting in the line of duty as a federal law enforcement officer. Oh, so you know what happens when it goes to federal court. Judge look out for one of his own. Quickly dismissed the case on grounds of sovereign immunity. That is sad, dude. Look at the corruption that Mm -hmm. is just happening here. My goodness. Yep. Sovereign immunity. You're allowed to do whatever you want. The decision to dismiss charges was reversed. Uh oh. Six to five in a 2001 by an, by a panel of the Ninth Circuit, which held that enough uncertainty about the facts of the case existed for Hirochi to stand trial on states, on state manslaughter charges. Okay. Boundary, uh, county prosecutor Brett Benson, who had defeated Woodbury in the May 2000 primary and won the election, decided to drop the case. Oh, why? He's OP. That's because the federal government was like, but you ain't picking up this case, bud. He said he believed that it was unlikely the state could prove the criminal charges. And too much time had passed. What? Nine years is too much time, apparently. And no, no criminal charges could be proved. Even though, even though every single report, federal or otherwise, said that this guy, oh my. What in the world is going on? He also believed his decision would enable the process of healing in the county. Attorney Stephen uh, Yangman, or Yagman, who had been appointed as a special prosecutor, said that they vehemently disagreed with this decision. He goes, I vehemently disagree with this decision. Vehemently. Nobody uses that word anymore. He just, he suggested that the case would, could still be prosecuted if the Boundary County prosecutor later changed again. Could it though? How many years you got it now? I don't think there's no, uh, thing on murder, dude. Right. Uh, Randy Weaver and his daughter Sarah wrote the federal siege at Ruby Ridge in 1998 about the incident what was published in paperback. The Weaver family, ooh, he got paid buku bucks for that though, I bet. The Weaver family, including Randy, later moved to Kalispell, Montana. Sarah and the other two Weaver daughters, daughters are employed there. Good for them. After becoming a born again Christian, Sarah Weaver said in 2012 that she had forgiven the federal agents who killed her mother and brother. Mm. Wendy, Wendy, <laughs> he just did too. Randy Weaver died on May 11, 2022, at the age of 74. Look at that. Wow. Still young. Yeah. American domestic terrorists Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols claimed that the revenge for the federal government's poor handling of Ruby Ridge and the Waco siege was their motivation for the Oklahoma City bombing, which we have in uh, the OKZ bombing. There's like four episodes of that. There's like two episodes of that, three episodes, I think. But uh, yeah, go back and listen to those ones. Great stuff. On uh, April 19th, 1995, the second anniversary of the fire that ended the Waco siege, they detonated a massive truck bomb in front of the... We know yeah, this. Yeah, we know, we know, we know. Right, 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 right. So, yeah. So, that's what Timmy McVeigh said. A CBS miniseries about the Ruby Ridge incident titled Ruby Ridge, an American Tragedy. 
aired on May 19th and the 21st in 1996. It was based on the book Every Knee Shall Bow by reporter Jess Walter. And reporters have awesome names. <laughs> <laughs> this is Jess Walter coming live from the scene. Uh, reporting from CBS, Jess Walter. <laughs> it starred Laura Dern as Vicky, Kirsten Dunst as Sarah, oh. and Randy Quaid as Randy. Oh, hey, what? Oh. <laughs> Sounds like a damn good movie. Uh, it makes sense that Randy Quaid is the... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> right, after... Yeah, they didn't know about it <laughs> then, but uh, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen this movie. Nope. That's a television series. Right. Miniseries, the- but then it came in movie. All right. Later that year, television series was adapted as full-length TV movie. It's called The Siege at Ruby Ridge. 1999, bluegrass musician Peter Rowan addressed the events at Ruby Ridge in his song, The Ballad of Ruby Ridge. Uh, nobody will ever hear. Um, Ruby Ridge was the subject of a Criminal Minds season three episode entitled Identity. Agent David Rossi said that he was at Ruby Ridge during the siege. Oh, you dirty bitch. Um, in 2017, it was the focus of the 23rd episode of American Experience, the fifth episode of its 29th season. Cool. The standoff, including the shooting of Vicki Weaver, is featured in the first episode of the Paramount Network television miniseries, Waco. I didn't even watch Waco either. Yeah, I heard it was good. Gee, of course. Oh, no, I watched like an episode. It was good. (laughs) (laughs) Jeez, OP. Tara Westover, in a memoir, Educated, 2018. Referred to this incident, noting her own family's preparations to defend their isolated home against a potential siege by the feds. See, everybody was worried about the feds, man. They had some, this, uh, I wonder if Randy Weaver ever said anything, if he knows anything, got any information mm, or maybe. something. Cause you can't, all oh, this from some freaking sawed off shotguns. <sighs> the Ruby Ridge incident was the subject of the first season of the narrative podcast series, Slate Presents. The four-episode season titled Standoff, What Happened at Ruby Ridge, ran as a standalone miniseries hosted by journalist Ruth Graham. It was also uh, featured in um, Outlaws and Gunslingers episode... Whatever it was. Whatever this episode is. Right. On the uh, Creative Control Network. <laughs> in 2020, the incident, Trust me, that'll be added in in about 10 years. Right. In 2020, the incident was featured in a season of Fox Nation's Scandalous. Good for them. Um... As you guys can probably tell, this whole uh, <laughs> this whole thing was just holy shit, garbage. The, uh, I don't even know what to say about this. Uh, I we, every freaking episode, the FBI just amazes me more and more of how incompetent and not worthless. Even com- they not are. even incompetent, how corrupt, corrupt. And, and, yes. and just dirty they are. Worthless. Dude. It's a worthless organization. Shredding documents that are related to stuff. Come on. And making sure that the And uh, then they do it again three months later at Waco. Six months later, dude. Oh my goodness. This is just but it's okay because everybody condemned it afterwards. Yeah. Oh. It's okay because twenty, thirty years later we're looking at it like the FBI was in the wrong. This should have never happened. Get Sad, the hell out dude. of here. Sad. Jeez, what a Pete. horrible episode. Of this, uh, <laughs> Terrible. Ridiculous. I don't All know. All that shit. And it could have been avoided. We started this podcast to just highlight like random outlaws and crimes outlaws and gunslingers <laughs> but i think <laughs> i think i think under the layers of all that what we've really been doing is highlighting the corruption, the corruption of the uh, united uh, states mainly government. the fbi but uh, the government as a whole Jeez, and all their great. agencies dude i mean holy Ridiculous. shit this crazy stuff wow <sighs> with that being said i mean this guy doesn't matter anyway randy even with his conspiracy believing or whatever he should just turn himself in for the damn gun charge he could have yeah. done his six seven months in jail or he probably would have just got probation or something right. Jeez, op unless there was something else I'm telling you they had something, something else, else buried in there that he knew and they knew something else that's why the, that's why they were leaving stuff out of reports and not reporting stuff because something yeah. else was going on something's going on there you're not a green beret, beret and don't know nothing right hmm. especially during nom right Get the hell Shit out happened of here. there. Right, 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 right. Thirty years anniversary, Ruby Ridge. You just heard it all, and uh, wow, I'm still, uh, I'm, st- I, I, I don't know how the FBI can surprise us even more, but I'm sure we got Waco coming up, so that'll be happening, and we got another siege, um, coming up. We got there's one in Michigan too. Yeah, there's a couple of them. Um, yeah, the FBI's trash. Trash. Uh, garbage. Before we leave. 
little reminder, make sure you guys go check out our other series, Battles of the American Civil War, where we just wrapped up the biggest and bloodiest battle of the war, which was the battle at Shiloh. Ooh, we thought it was going to be a two-parter, uh, but guess what, boys? Yeah, we thought this was going to be a two-parter, too. Right. But, uh, yeah, biggest and, biggest and bloodiest, lots of uh, casualties there, by far the biggest of the uh, war so far. And um, noted, too, that the highest-ranking officer on e- 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 any side of the army... Lost his life. Um, lost his life, and that was the highest ranking through the whole war. So, so yeah, um, yeah, yeah, Johnston, um, yeah. unfortunately, well, I guess unfortunately, if you want to look at it in history things, but highest ranking officer killed in that battle as well. And I mean, um, just, be, just because he fought for the Confederate doesn't some, deserve to die. Some would say, as you would hear in the episode, especially on the Confederate side, that was the beginning of the end of the war, even though it lasted another two and a half years after that. But uh, uh, the whole 1862 was the beginning of the end yeah, especially, yeah. So, garbage. Uh, Battles of the American Civil War, go check that out. And then um, this week in sports history, where we, as the audio, or the audio, the title suggests, we look at the week of sports history, significant or insignificant, doesn't matter. We're covering it all right there. Just go to Bang Nang Network, type it in the old Google, and uh, you'll see all of our other shows there as well. No time to promote all those, as we'll, ta- we'll be here for another 20 minutes. We'll be back next week for... I don't know. We had the last three weeks all planned out, and then I think maybe we'll come back with maybe um, we could do the shooting of John Lennon or something like that. That's an interesting story. But uh, he's an outlaw, though. Well, I guess he's a gunslinger. The gunslinger. He's an outlaw as well. Right. He was hunted. Okay. Well, he wasn't hunted. He was right. he was arrested almost immediately. But he's a gunslinger for sure. Yeah, he um, a gun and shot somebody. Ray Chapman. Robert Ray Chapman or something like that. Oh yeah. Rudy Ray Chapman. Robert Ray Chapman. Also obsessed. How's that always three names. Right. Well, because that's. Uh, that's how they do. He was also um, doing it for. Um, Still got JFK. In. What's her name? All oh, that good stuff. What? What's the actress's name? Marilyn Monroe. No. Um, what? What the hell was her name? For what? What the hell are you the, talking about? Jodie Foster. Oh. For what? So uh, he did it so she could notice him. Oh, Jordan, yeah, yeah. There's a whole thing, whole thing with John Lennon murder. So maybe we'll do that next week. Either way, we got a lot of stuff to get to before. I thought we were going to be on the mafia by now, but I just keep finding interest in stuff that uh, we haven't even got to. And well, you know what? Wait for the mafia. Just put, put it that way. End, we're not trying to quickly end a series. Right. We'll be back next week for something. We are the Mouth of Michiganders. Bang, bang.